Hey everyone, grace and peace to you. Uh, welcome to the Park Hill Church Podcast. My name's Evan Wickham, and I'm one of the pastors at Park Hill Church here in San Diego, and this is a continuation of our interview series. Uh, we're interviewing uh, biblical scholars, theologians, and pastors, and asking them personal questions and just questions from their profession, uh, how to read and trust the Bible well. And uh, this is to enrich our current teaching series on Sundays, which is entitled God Breathed. And the whole point is we're relearning how to read and trust this ancient library of documents that comes to us through the people of God by the Spirit of God. What does that even mean? An ancient library of books that comes to us through an ancient people by the breath of God. God breathed through human authors. What does that even look like? And so that's what we're digging into. Sundays, we're talking big picture, but in these interviews, we are looking more kind of into the weeds and and answering some of the questions that come in, some of the hard stuff that comes with reading the Bible. So with that, I'd love to welcome you all to... Uh, in, I'd love to introduce to you the man and the myth mm. and the legend... Mm. Gentleman and scholar, Dr. A.J. Swoboda. Welcome oh. to the podcast, my friend. It's difficult for me to express the fullness with which I am, uh, am running, uh, my cup runneth over with gratitude for the opportunity to see you, my friend, Evan Wickham. <laughs> we love you at Park Hill. I love you as a friend, and um, I've got to see you um, a couple times this year, I think. Indeed. And, mm-hmm. And we're going to see you again in December. You're coming to our church to preach during Advent, and uh, we're thrilled about that. So um, I'd love to just, I I immediately, my brain wanted to say, how are you, and start talking as friends, but we're recording a podcast right now. So I have other questions for you. Uh, Some of them are personal, Um, but if you don't mind, we jump right in. I want to ask you how, AJ, your pastor... And uh, you're also a professional Bible guy. You train pastors, and you train people in, in how to think theologically about all of life. And you, you've convinced me in, in some of your books and some of the speaking that you've done that discipleship to Jesus is something that touches all of life for a follower of Jesus. It doesn't fit in just a compartment. And so with that, how, how do we let our discipleship to Jesus touch our political engagement? Because... Looking forward into the next year, um, 2024 is going to be a beast, I think. Uh, 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 it's going to be uh. a beast for the American church. Um, yeah. So how, how can we be faithful? How can we be faithful Jesus disciples, to use your words, in a wildly partisan, hyper-polarized moment? So you're talking oh, to oh, Park Hill Church oh. and whoever's listening to this beyond Park Hill on the podcast. How... Jesus loving people. How can we mm, how can mm. we follow Jesus well and identify, resist, and really love people against the grain of all the warring ideologies that want our yeah. hearts? Uh, kudos uh, to you, friend, for um, for setting such a, a rich a rich table, a rich feast uh, of conversations uh, for not only Park Hill but for the for the church in general. And uh, so, thank you. Uh, let me let me maybe immediately, in knee-jerk reaction, give two immediate responses that immediately come to mind. Um, I think the first uh, thing that comes to mind is we to your question of how do we think as disciples about politics, um, not just as we prepare ourselves for uh, an election cycle, 
but as part and parcel of uh, the polis, the city that God has called us to live in. Uh, if we live in Babylon, uh, as our mutual friend uh, Preston Sprinkle likes to say, if we live there, then what does it look like to be faithful people in Babylon um, in, in the ways of Jesus? So two things immediately come to mind. Um, the, first, the first sort of thing that comes to mind is, is that our, our initial image of Jesus as a, as a baby, which is a, is a fascinating feature of the Christian story. I don't know any other religious tradition that claims God at some point in history wore a diaper. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really interesting... I don't know any other religion that, that knows that God. Mm-hmm. Is our first, our first image of Jesus as a baby is that he is and has become a threat to the person in power. And so Herod, the first image we... It's interesting, Herod seeks Jesus. So do the Magi. Um, Seeking Jesus is not enough. Mm. Herod seeks Jesus uh, to kill him. The Magi seek Jesus to follow him. How is it possible that a baby would drive a king mad? How is it possible that uh, that Herod would be so driven to madness as to, to drop everything he's doing to get this little guy out of the way? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that if, if we feel threatened by Jesus on some level, then we are appropriately engaging the story of Jesus. Wow. Uh, Jesus uh, threatens all of our control, all of our power, that little Herod that lives alive and well in all of us does not get what it wants. And, and that, is, that is to say, um, the, the story of Jesus is ultimately humans giving up control for the sake of living under God's uh, rule and reign. So we have to, I, at the end of the day, when I think about politics, I'm struck how often I'm, I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of like civil war. I'm afraid of like what happens if this party gets power or this party. And really what's happening is I'm not afraid of I'm not afraid of those parties. I'm afraid of losing control. Mm. And I think Jesus confronts that little part of me. So I would say, number one, do we ultimately go to Jesus because we want to control him and put him in his place and use him for our own power? Or do we go to submit ourselves to him? So Jesus ultimately confronts our politics on that level. Second, the second immediate thing that comes to mind is that we project on the Bible a whole array of unfair expectations. We project upon Jesus uh, our desires. It is Acts 1, uh, the disciples still after three years of public ministry saying to Jesus, Jesus, when will you restore your, the, the kingdom be restored to Israel? That you can hear the simmering desire for political power, violence, mm. Israel is going to control again. Mm. When will Israel come back and, 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 and take over? And I, you know, the, the fact that the disciples are still doing this after the resurrection should remind us all that none of us are immune from the terrors of projecting onto the Bible our desires rather than hearing the Bible's desires for us. This is the eternal problem, is that we want Jesus to do our ish, which is ultimately 
Yeah. The, the breakdown of the third commandment. Oh, wow. Do not misuse God's name, which is ultimately, it is when we take our agenda and we put God's banner over it. Mm. So uh, I would, so this, I just would say, we've got, all got to recognize the proclivities that we have to project upon Jesus, our desires. And the way of Jesus is the submission of our desires to God's desires, not the uh, other way around. So how would you, rec- how would you recommend people go about checking themselves against that proclivity? Mm-hmm. If we're tempted to read, quote-unquote, the red letters, <laughs> or mm-hmm. isolate Jesus and make him bend, even subconsciously, to our desires, uh, if we're tempted to do that all the time, how do we check ourselves? Mm-hmm. So that we're so that we're seeing Jesus rightly and not as how not as we wish him to be. I was just sharing yesterday. It's funny that you asked that question. I was I was sharing yesterday with a group of pastors uh, uh, about my publication history. I have the weirdest publication history I think of anybody I know. For a while, for a while, I did uh, environmental theology. That was what I did my initial PhD work in. And then I wrote about discipleship. And then I wrote about Sabbath. And then I wrote about doubt and deconstruction. And I was sharing with the group how I've noticed this very weird Venn diagram between Sabbath and deconstruction and doubt. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, to say that I've noticed, I've observed, that people who actually embrace the Sabbath tend to eventually start walking through some deep moments of deconstruction. Not necessarily bad deconstruction, but they begin to rethink their theology. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is... The way that we protect ourselves from having to change is we don't stop. And oh so what we, what we do is we just work tirelessly and fearless endlessly as a way to not have to think and be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the minute you stop and you actually invite the Holy Spirit to be the Lord of your day for a day and you shut up and you invite God to speak, all of a sudden these, these little nudges start coming up, these little questions about your life and why you do what you do and your motivations and the power structures in your heart and your, and, your, and your incentive structures and the things that draw you in and out of why you do what you do. How do we know what we project on Jesus? I would say there's an intimate relationship to, uh, to resting in that. Mm. In that when we stop, there, uh, rabbis had this cool, cool idea called strange thoughts. It sounds like strange things, but strange thoughts which was that when the rabbi, Jewish rabbis, mystics, would talk about getting quiet, that they would always struggle with their deepest temptations. So in the quiet, they would deal with lust, they would deal with greed, they would deal with envy, that our deepest idols come to the surface in the quiet. How do, how do we know what we're projecting on Jesus? Well, I'd, I would guess the best way to not find out is to stay busy. But I oh, probably the best way to find out is to actually stop and give God time for God to highlight that stuff and underline it and italicize it. I cannot Sabbath without something of my incentive structure around control to come to the surface. Mm-hmm. It crucifies my narcissism and it crucifies my ability to, um, to get what I want. And people that say the Sabbath is like just about privilege, which I understand there's a whole vignette about this. People that Sabbath are the ones that are able to afford it and whatnot. There's an interesting conversation I had about that. But people that actually Sabbath, it is the, it is the loss of control. It's the loss of privilege. I am not the mm-hmm. Lord of that day. 
And so the Lord brings to the surface more on Sabbath days for me, those power structures that I, I need to identify that I've been projecting on Jesus. My goodness. Oh, gosh, I can't even... I had, I did not know what we are going to talk about today, uh, I, and you didn't either, and that was profound, AJ. I, I'm thinking back to my vacation, and I don't want to turn this interview into, like, you pastoring me. <laughs> but, my, <laughs> but my vacation last summer, you know, we do, the Wickham family does this vacation, we get away for, like, three weeks. The church graciously gives us time mm. and, and hard lines, like, no emails, you know, make sure your phone is shut down and go for 20 days. Mm-hmm. And it, I, it, for us, it is a privilege, but a good one and essential. And I started to have a midlife crisis. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Just thinking, thinking through, what, am, I, am I really, for me, the, the core motivating question is, am I significant? Everything I do yes. in, in life, I take that question and I hold it up to something. Hopefully I'm holding it up to Jesus. Um, and I'm seeing the Father's love through Christ yes. being poured out into my heart by the Spirit. Yeah. But sometimes I, I hold that significance question up to the wrong things mm. and measure mm. myself by those things. And that's what mm. happened when we took extended Wild. Sabbath yeah. and seeing Jesus rightly. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah. I just Fro- Freud, uh, can, I, can I just say, Fro- Freud, yeah. uh, God bless him, uh, there's a uh, just a uh, there's a treasure trove of reasons why I don't like Freud. Um, I, I could I could I could list a, a variety of beefs that I would have with the old Sigmund. Um, but one of the one of the things that uh, I love about Sigmund Freud is that he was one of the first. My friend Richard Beck at Abilene Christian University was the one that pointed this out to me. Um, Freud was one of the first psychologists that actually believed that we should listen to children. Mm. Before Freud, children were locked up. They were thrown into, you know, institutions if they, if they spoke up. I mean, they were, they were essentially not listened to. One of Freud's greatest gifts with, with my treasure trove of beefs with the Freud is that he taught us that actually listening to a person's child... Uh, can have uh, remarkable uh, fruit in uh, mental health. Um, it, 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 why does that matter here? When Jesus says, um, let the children come to me, we usually interpret that to mean actual literal children. And, 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 and that's one element of the story of Jesus, no question. But I'm convinced that part of the way of Jesus is actually listening to our inner child. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. listening to those years of our childhood that we have been just shoving away into the institution of, we just ignore it, and mm-hmm. we, we don't. And it is amazing to me, Evan, at 42 years old, how much of my addiction to work, my desire to be noticed, my desire to be given a microphone, mm-hmm. my desire to want to be wanted, is all interconnected like a ball of Christmas lights with my childhood. What a picture. Yeah, I mean, get, get, when we are quiet, that's what quiet does, is in the quiet, the kids come out and play. Mm. And in the quiet, mm. as you experienced, in the quiet, um, we have our breakdowns. That's why Freud would talk about Sabbath depression. He called it Sabbath neurosis, because he noticed that when his Jewish patients would get quiet, they get really depressed. Mm. And, and there's a reason. 
because it allows the hearts of it. No wonder we don't want to shut up. We don't want the kids to come and play. We don't want to listen mm. to, that, to that stuff. When it comes to biblical literacy, though, which is, of course, why, why we're here now, mm-hmm. um, is that in the quiet, there's an intimate relationship between the contemplative life and biblical a, a life of reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is that we don't we we have to practice silence alongside good biblical literacy because it's in the silence that the Holy Spirit illuminates for us the the wrong things that we are projecting onto the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if it is true, as us as us charismatics would say, that the same spirit that inspired Scripture is the same spirit that transpires Scripture, then to read the Bible. Um, alongside the guiding and loving hand of the Holy Spirit, who knows and seeks all things, is it? You, you can't separate those two things. Yeah, that's that's where this series is going to end. Someone just asked me on staff yesterday, like, Evan, we're talking about last Sunday was science and faith, and we had a scientist who's also an elder unpack, you know, why Genesis one and two does not require a certain scientific model or cosmology in order to understand the theological implications, yeah. and so that was great. But one of our staff guys was like, that was an awesome lecture. Uh, When are we going to get to, like, you know, sitting down with the text and teaching people how to encounter Jesus in the text? I'm like, well, that's been sprinkled out through this series, Mm -hmm. and that's the end. The last two teachings of this series are going to end with this reality. All this information, and we don't read the Bible for information and motivation primarily. We read for union and communion. Yes. And and here's how that worked. But it's like, like, I don't know if Dan Kimball came up with the word, the phrase, uh, but I love it. Never read a Bible verse. Yes. Uh, It's Greg Kukul in his book. Uh, I love that line. Don't, that's the number one Bible rule. Don't read a verse. Don't read read a verse. That's don't, right. Yes. yes. And, and obviously, yes. Uh, emphasis on A, singular. <laughs> don't read one yes. verse out of context is the yes. point. But people would res- people respond in our church, but Evan, our whole year reading plan this year is Lectio Divina, where you encourage mm. one word being chewed on for 10 minutes. Mm. How does that go together? I'm like, well, mm. it goes together when you have the whole forest, when you're biblically literate, reading yeah. in community with the living and dead church uh, by the power of the Spirit, then you come in, you swoop mm. down into the the six inch, from 30,000 feet down to six inches. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and you do everything you just said, Sabbath with a verse mm, in the community mm, of the Spirit. Mm, mm, and, yes. you, and you see Jesus rightly. So, my gosh, um, this, the first, I don't even know, like the first 15 minutes of this conversation is gold. We could end here, but there's more. Yeah. So, so what were you going to say? Can I share a story? Uh, yes. I, I, um, this is, this is a, a very vulnerable story for me. I, I don't know if I've ever actually shared this publicly. Um, and here so go. I tread I tread lightly, knowing knowing that I'm uh, here. Here it comes, new new content. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. I um. So what? What? Here's a question. So why? Why are we? Why do I see a lot of Christians that have a a profound amount of shame? around not being biblically literate. Mm. And that is to say, I see a lot of Christians that are almost ashamed that they don't know the Bible as well as they know that they should or something like that. There's been a ton written about biblical literacy. And, and you know, in my experience, the best way to keep people from being biblically literate is to throw rocks at them and make, and make them feel really bad that they don't know the Bible very well. 
Um, like, like that's a great way to keep people from caring. I'm so um, glad you're saying this. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me tell you, let me tell you a story. There's a unique kind of shame to me that uh, is birthed out of biblical illiteracy, especially for the Christian. Um, when I was a kid, I was afforded a family that um, financially was fine. My dad is a doctor. My mom was a nurse. And, um, and that was good. But the, one, of the, one of the problems from my childhood was that um, my dad was largely absent. Uh, just he had, he had moved away when I was 11, um, and he, he largely wasn't there from 11 on. And uh, I have not one single um, memory of uh, eating with my dad. It's a very weird like hole in my memory. I don't remember eating with my dad. And um, as a result of this, I never had, as a kid, I never had anybody teach me how to uh, build stuff. I, I just never learned how to like build things. Same. I never learned. Yeah, I don't like. Like, I don't know. I don't. If you ask me to like change oil or like fix fix something, I, I'm not a I'm not a handyman at yeah. a, in any way, shape, or form. My wife is. I'm married to uh, my wife. Quinn is like the handy woman of the year. She mm. knows how to fix everything, um, and is really great at this. So a number of years ago, we were in our backyard building a treehouse uh, for our son, um, and she says to me, "I'm help, out in the back helping." I very rarely leave the sunless world of academia for the work of building things, largely because I feel uncomfortable out there. But when she asked to help, I go out, and she said, "Would you go into the garage and get me a?" Uh, a Phillips head screwdriver. So I go into the garage. I'm all, yeah, you got it. I'll go go find it. And I'm standing over our toolbox, and uh, and out of, Evan, I don't know. This is like the, the it's the most almost. I, I don't. I, I have very little very, very little by way of explanation of this. It just happened. I'm looking down at the toolbox, and I just start to cry. Mm. Mm. And I and I'm I'm overcome with this profound sense of both shame and sadness. And I mm. sit down and I'm like, am I having a midlife crisis? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it dawns on me that I don't know what a Phillips head screwdriver is. And I'm sitting there mm. and all these emotions, I'm a man, I should know what this is. And now I have to go show my wife that I don't know what it is. So, to guard against the shame, I just pick up all the tools and I take them out to her and I say, get what you want as a way of guarding against my shame. And she can see I'm crying and she says, what's up? Wow. And, and I tell her. And this was, this was about six years ago, and seven years ago. And um, it, it has been seven years since that. And my wife has been teaching me how to become a handyman. I'm not very good, but she's teaching me some things. And I know what wow. a Phillips head screwdriver is now. When I think about, <clears throat> when I think about that story, there is a double shame for not knowing something, but there's a double shame for not knowing something that we should know. Mm, mm. And I think a lot of Christians, I call it Bible shame, a lot of Christians, there's a double shame for not knowing the Bible, and then there's a double shame for not knowing the story that they think they, think they, should, they should. And every time we're with other Christians who are quoting all this stuff and know everything, we, we quietly don't even know how to interpret it, but there's this thing going on in the back of our heads. You don't know what you're doing. Gosh. And that Bible shame of not knowing what a Phillips head screwdriver is used by the enemy in our hearts to keep us from God's glorious word. Oh, man. And I think by calling that out 
I, I want, there may be one or two people listening to this who identify with this story. But if you have that Bible shame where you're like, I, I just, I don't know the Bible and I feel like an absolute idiot for not knowing it. That is, the, the enemy has weaponized that against you to keep you away from the Bible. And you need to know the Holy Spirit in the middle of that is whispering to you, this story is too good to, keep, to allow your shame to keep you away. Oh my gosh. AJ, this is um, this is something that I I want to, and I don't mean this just tritely as a response, but I kind of want to uh, re- repent of not leading with this. Not, and uh, I, I'd love to <clears throat> I'd love to open this up to the whole church on a Sunday somehow, maybe. If you're if if someone's listening to this and they're hearing it again, it's probably because I I want to relay it this Sunday mm-hmm. in person mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. this podcast even goes up next week or whenever it's going up, just because that's that's one of the most I can't think of a more important thing that we haven't said. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> yeah, that's so. Uh, of all people that so probably good. need to repent of this, it's probably not you, Evan, and um, because you're so generous and kind and, and welcoming. Um, but I, I do think that there may be a point of healing for an individual who has been made to feel as inferior for not being able to find Second Chronicles. Yeah. And and they they just they they like they don't know why is there a two in front of Timothy? What does that yeah. even mean? And and there's a sense of like I don't know. I'm in the back. Um, and, and that, <clears throat> those little moments of not being able to know what a, what a Phillips head screwdriver is, you can interpret that as your failure, yeah. or you can interpret that as the Holy Spirit's generous, beneficial welcome. Come to the story. Yeah. Come to the story. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I want everyone to hear this series in that light from here on out. And that's, that's what I'm me. I just can't say a louder amen to what you're saying. Um, and I pray that people experience healing and, oh my gosh, seenness, you know, seenness from God. My gosh. Um, I want to pivot onto you, AJ, and thank you, by the way, for telling the story of the toolbox. What an apt, that that fact that historically happened to you and it relates so aptly to the toolbox mm. of reading scripture yeah. um, i can by the way you we haven't celebrated enough i do know what a phillips head screwdriver is and yeah. and this is that but it's taken six or seven years yes but i i can identify now a phillips head screwdriver and it's it's really liberating <laughs> it's so good it can be done it can um be done. so what's one part of the bible you reverend dr aj swoboda um What's one part of the Bible you still lose sleep over? You read it. <laughs> That's your question. I love, I love this AJ question. Uh, yeah. What's, what's one part of the Bible? You're, you're a professional Bible guy, and, you know, and you're still, you're still going, man. Mm-hmm. There's, you might know some ways to deal with the text because you've read widely, but you're still like, man. Mm. And what do you do with that man feeling? Yes, yes. Um, I think um, I would have said years ago, 
um, that um, I think I would have said years ago that probably uh, some of the um, the stories of, of of the conquest Joshua narrative stuff would have kept me up at night. But I've actually come to tremendous peace around that stuff, um, hmm. largely due to you know God telling His people to you know uh, to 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 commit acts of violence in in ancient Canaan um, as they enter into the Promised Land. Um, I've come to appreciate too much friends who um, have had children with cancer and family members who have had to go to the most unbelievably challenging ends to show love. Um, Nije, uh, Nije Gupta, who I believe you've already had on this this world-renowned podcast, um, <laughs> uh, may, in, in one of our recent episodes, describes what it's like to pump his daughter full of poison to love her when she has cancer. Um, mm. That when you're a dad and you are trembling as you put poison in your daughter's body to save her life, that there are acts of love that that in the normal world without a context look like hatred, but mm. in but the right context are actually profound acts of love. And I'm in, I really do believe that those stories to me I've I've resolved to be at peace with them. That there is an angle to those stories that is more loving than we can see. Um, I actually tend to struggle more. Um, with um, with Paul's commandment to f- uh, uh, Paul's commandments around um, uh, uh, flee from sexual immorality, it's not an issue of me not believing it. It's an issue of me. Um, uh, it's an issue of me living in a body that it having the flesh and recognizing that some of the commandments in the Bob in the Bible are not commandments that I get to do overnight. They'll probably take seventy years for me to live out. Mm. And wow. uh, it's hard to have commandments that I don't get to just do in a, in a short week. I can't repent in a week of of deep entrenched flesh that that is in me and, and doesn't just go away. Damn it, you know. And yeah. I wish it would. I just yeah. wish it would go away. So I, I lose sleep over um, over commandment. There's only two times in Corin- in in the Corinthian letters uh, where Paul uses the word flee. Only two times. And oddly enough, it is flee from sexual immorality and flee from idolatry. So he is writing to a church and he's essentially saying there's two, sexuality and, and idolatry are wildly connected. They're, they're not, you, 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 what we worship and, and our sexual identities are intertwined. Inter- intertwined. Um, and so I lose sleep over just the, the healing process that Jesus has been taking me through in terms of, of my sexual self. And I'm, and I'm tired of it, and I'm frustrated with it, and I've lost too much sleep over it. I'm reading your forthcoming book. You sent me the manuscript, and it's profound. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the title set, The Gift of Thorns? Uh, it is. And with any good academic, I'm having regrets about everything. But uh, that is the title, <laughs> and uh, oh, I, I'm sticking with it. Yeah, I'm glad you're sticking with this. Um, seems like everything you just said is related to that. Um, yeah. yeah, so be waiting, church, be waiting for AJ's book, Gift of Thorns, um, where he unpacks a lot of, a lot of that, just uh, mm-hmm. theology of desire and yes. how to bring God into our desires and bring our desires to God. Um, so, yeah, you, you mentioned a shift. Ten-ish years ago, you'd, you'd be more troubled than you are today by the by the 
so-called genocide passages of the Old Testament. What is another part of the Bible, maybe in the last 10 years, that you've shifted on, um, mm. that you've seen? That I've shifted on. Yeah, ah, that, you, that you've yeah, shifted yeah. on. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I'm not even yeah. going to put words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say, yeah, here's a big one. Um, uh, the 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 um, so okay. Do you know the difference? So there's a difference between hard texts, which are texts that are hard to interpret, and what I call easy texts, which are texts that we too easily interpret. <laughs> oh wow! So easy texts yeah. are like the ones we just think we know, and then we just zoom past them. One for me, an easy text. And this is not a hard text. It's an easy text. Is uh, is John three sixteen. Uh, for God so loved the world um, that he gave his only son that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, we hear that. We make bat mat, bath mat, mats out of it. We put it mm -hmm. on our bumper stinker, stinkers, bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. um, and we assume that that is just uh, a simple invitation to believe that Jesus loves all humans. And I've, I've, I think I've turned... Uh, the table on that cosmos there that John uses the world cosmos um, is is way more uh, cosmological than we interpret it, and so we we've thought for years that's about humans, and it is about humans and the rest of the cosmos. Um, and I think I've been I've shifted on how I read verses like that that say God loves us. Uh, God loves us. He does, mm -hmm. and the sparrows. Mm -hmm. and the land, and the cows, and the stars, and albeit, and extraterrestrials that we have yet to meet, but we know exist. Let's let's dig into that for a second. Ah! Oh! So ah, would God have okay. to save, if we found sentient beings who have a moral will, mm -hmm. would God be interested in saving? That's actually mm -hmm. a, <laughs> a live question amongst one of our staff who's like dead set, based on New World yeah. precedent. <laughs> like, yeah. So here's here's um, I actually am not I'm not going to give an derail. answer um, I'm okay. not going to give an answer but I, because because I and I do have I have actually some inclinations towards that I'm going to actually speak on the meta and here's the meta um, uh, we need to God rest his soul Michael Heiser when he passed away uh, a saint went into the presence of Jesus he was one of the only biblical theologians I know of who was bold enough to go on the record to to write about this stuff and. E yeah, yeah, to write, essentially write about like aliens and UFOs from a biblical perspective. And this is and flowing out of John 3.16, the cosmos. God so loved yes, the yeah, whole yeah. cosmos, including E.T. Including the whole kit and caboodle. Here's the problem, is most Christians, I, I'm completely convinced that if we actually did have an engagement with a sentient race or sentient civilization, because most Christians have never been taught theologically how to think about this, if we actually met them, I think more Christians than you would be comfortable with would reject their faith because they would have no theological category to think about these things. And so I think we need to, we need to construct a biblical theology of aliens, UFOs, sentient beings, um, because if we don't, um, we, we are setting people up to have the biggest faith crisis of their entire lives. Well, we so, have a... We have a a historical historical theology major on on our elder team who believes in what you're saying like he's he's with you he's a he's been thinking about this for years Matt personally and he points back 
to the doctrine of discovery uh, as as precedent. New world means new world, oh, and and going to bring going to bring an awareness of the triune God revealed in Jesus Christ and His salvific work work on the cross and His physical mm-hmm. resurrection applies to all physical sentient beings. Yeah, and the new creation that He brings will cover all of their world too. Yeah, and so there's well, but but but. I don't know, Matt. I I long for this conversation. I'll be. I, I definitely paraphrased him. I paraphrased him. He, sure. he, he'd be like, "Yes, but, but, but this would assume this would assume that the fall, Genesis three, um, it, is a is a cosmological fall beyond Earth, and I'm not I'm not necessarily convinced that the human fall here would apply to every other dimension outside uh. of here. So. Uh, meaning, little did you know we would have be having this conversation. But but it, it's I'm I'm stimulated in heart and soul. I don't know if you are, but I'm oh, 100%. Every, every last second of this. I don't know if the fall um, is is beyond Earth. I don't know. And so um, could it be? And I'm just thinking out loud here. But could it could it be that uh, when we engage these particular sentient um, civilizations and races that they are you know, antediluvian, they're, they're pre-fall, you know, communities, mm. or, or they're, they're non-fallen uh, entities, uh, or, or they're demonic angels, and I'm completely wrong. So I, I don't, it's, it's really one, one or the other. Yeah, but, Matt, but I, I think says we, that the demonic angel explanation, <laughs> he says that's the biggest cop-out ever. Yeah, I do think it's a cop-out. I, I think that we tend to, to lean on that too, too, not that not that demons and angels don't exist, but that explaining ETs away as demons yes. or angels yeah. is a cop out. Yes, I, I I would agree with that. Um, you know, John Bradbury, who's the famous sci-fi writer, he once said, "There's two options, and there's only two options. These are the two options. Uh, there is either something else out there, or there's nothing else out there, and both are scary options." So, you you've shifted on extraterrestrials. That's the answer to the question. <laughs> I am more I am more open to a cosmological reading of the Bible than I used to be. Come on. Okay, that's a great answer. You guys, the Bible is amazing. <laughs> yes. So indeed. so um, more personal. As a <laughs> as even more, we're drilling down into who I appreciate that. Actually, this is very personal. Who me, is who is AJ Swoboda? <laughs> so so uh, professional Bible guy, Bible's your job. Also, Bible is where God wants to meet AJ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like your job, you have an office, you have books on how to like parse everything, and you've parsed it for 20 years, and, and yet, yet God wants to... He's like, you're my beloved son yeah. in Christ, and I'm coming to you through the text right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm-hmm. When, so when God... How does God meet like A.J. Sobota, beloved son, in the text? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Um, it looks like, mm, oh, okay, that's how I would say that. Um, you know, Evan, how people say, and, and you have a number of terrific therapists in your church, uh, people that are committed to holistic transformation through mental health and uh, getting into our, our stories. Um, when you talk about um, a therapist or a teacher or a youth pastor, or somebody in a role of authority that shapes somebody's life. We often say that those 
people are called to reparent somebody. Mm. That that is mm-hmm. to say, they're not replacing parents, but they're offering what the parental love was unable to bring to a person. Which you know, as a dad, there's going to be a day when my son is going to be a counselor in a counselor's office, and he's going to discover that there were ways that I failed him, um, and he will need some care in that. And I grieve that, but I we I'm a human being, and he is a human being, and everybody is a human being. When I read the Bible, I feel like I get reparented. Mm. Um, I am receiving parental care that I um, that I didn't necessarily have. And I have a dad who comes alongside me and speaks lovingly and truthfully to me um, and teaches me um, and, and teaches me about the Phillips head screwdrivers. I have a dad. I have a dad. A beautiful, beautiful response. Thank you for that. And then the final question. I know uh, we have a hard stop for your schedule and uh, your time is both valuable and limited. I recognize that. Thank you for being with us, AJ. Uh, our church thanks you for coming last year and this Advent as well to preach. Um, last question. So when you, when you look out at the state of the Bible slash church, like the relationship between the church and Scripture and how we're, how we're living it out in communities all over, um, what, what are you excited, nervous about? So... Positive, negative. What are you? What challenge do you have, or what like celebration do you have? Yeah. Um, like, what's your yeah. gut response when you look out at what's going on in the church as it relates to the Bible and living it out? Yep. Um, two two things. Um, I'll tell you what concerns me and what excites me. I'll I'll do it in that order. Number one, what concerns me um, is just a turn that I've noticed in a lot of preaching. Um, and I noticed this turn in myself, I'm, I'm concerned about it, where we tend to get so interested in have, having such mind-blowing content, hmm. cultural critique, historical and that we get so good at the bells and the whistles that the voice of Scripture can be lost. I, I think that there is a, a temptation hmm. for us to idolize good content over just beautiful the simplicity of scripture. Mm. So I, wor- I worry a little bit about that. I think it's the, the Ted talkification of the church um, where we, we just, rather than feeding the church, we want to blow its mind. I worry about that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I worry about that. Um, and then the, the second thing that most encourages me is new, entirely fresh and green Christians at my university in our city where I live, friends, who are just brand new to the Bible, that when they read the Bible afresh, they hear the voice of God uh, in a way that is not muddled by uh, recalcitrant tradition and dead reading. It is just fresh and raw. And I think as we see post-Christian culture, uh, one of the gifts of post-Christian culture is that finally people, again, are going to read the Bible afresh. And that in that excites me to no end. Amen to that. My friend, thank you. Thanks for being with us and contributing to the conversation about the Bible and how God speaks to us through it at, at, at our church, Park Hill. Thanks for this. And uh, can't wait to see you in December. And that is, that is it for this one, you guys. Thanks for listening to 
this interview with Dr. A.J. Soboda. How can folks kind of find your books and hear more from you? You have, you have a wealth of wisdom. Mm. How do people tap into that well? Yeah. Um, well, you can you can utilize the internet to purchase anything that I've ah, I've put my, yes. my, my, my my name on, um, or, or you can go to your local booksellers and support the ma and pa person down the street who's trying to make a living by selling some books. That's my preferred method. Um, but in general, I've turned my back uh, against uh, in in almost lock stock fashion. I've turned my back on social media. Um, and basically only go into it now for the same reason that Neo goes into the Matrix to get people out. So at this stage, uh, I don't go, please don't go to social media to find, so me, that's how, find me there. So that's how someone writes 10 books in as many years. To be clear, 12, um, uh, <laughs> just, just so that we're clear. Um, that's how but, someone writes 12 books in 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you, yeah, life and, hack. And, You've hacked the code. Bur- yeah, but much of that is birthed out of some deep, deep childhood uh, holes in my heart. But that's that's another conversation for another, yeah. another moment. Yeah. Well, AJ, uh, uh, grace and peace to you, my friend, and and, and listeners. Grace and peace to you. May the Lord bless and keep you today. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. And see you at church this Sunday as we continue our series on Scripture. God bless.